0: Thank you, Stan worship team for leading us in songs of praise, uh, reflect, focusing upon uh, the the great foundation that we have in Christ, the one in whom we trust. Again, I just want to warmly welcome all of you to our service this morning, and so glad to have many of you back with us uh, that are kind of uh, just uh, tr- uh, here for the holidays, for Christmas New Year, glad to have you with us, and uh, it's always a joy to uh, worship not only with uh, Old friends and old family, uh, but also new friends and new family, too. So glad to have you with us. Uh, those You know who you are uh, that are sitting out there. All right. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 34 this morning. As we look to uh, God's word uh, and as we continue in worship. We had a wonderful time, you know, just even this past, uh, Friday celebrating, uh, on Christmas Day with many of you. And so, uh, I trust that those of you that, uh, that were here were blessed, but those of you that were not able to be with us were also blessed in your celebrations with family and friends and, uh, with loved ones, uh, wherever, uh, God had, had brought, had brought you. Um, so, uh, we just, uh, on behalf of Cindy and our family, we just want to wish, wish all of you, uh, uh, hopefully a Merry Christmas and a blessed New Year. Um, And pray that uh, this 2016 will be a year that's just uh, full of joy for many of you, uh, full of blessings and just uh, continued faith and trust in the Lord. Well, usually at the end of of each year, uh, I try to preach a message that's an appropriate end of the year message. Uh, Kind of something to kind of, you know, make us reflect upon the past year and then launch us off into the new year. but as we, as you know, we, we have been going through the book of Isaiah, and I, I just felt that I just wanted to keep working through Isaiah, because we're only at chapter 10. There's still uh, 60, 56 more chapters to go. And so I didn't just want to just uh, address every passage. And you know, one of the convictions I have as a, as a preacher of the God's Word is that no matter what passage you're preaching on, no matter from the scriptures, it always has application for those people and that moment. That you're speaking to it always has. So, you know, I could preach this message to a group of moms on Mother's Day and it would be I could apply it to moms. I could preach this message on uh, a maybe a, a graduation day in June and to students and it will apply to them as well. You can preach God's word and every sit to every situation, to every group, to any time, because God's word is an eternal word. And so, uh, because of that, as I've looked at, reflected upon this passage, though it is a passage that speaks about judgment, you know, make no mistakes, and it's a judgment of a nation that's long gone, the judgment upon the Syrian empire, okay, it is still a passage that speaks to us today at this end of the year. And I believe it will be a very appropriate end-of-the-year message as we, uh, as we study this theme of the judgment, the woe upon Assyria. All right? So hopefully you will enjoy uh, just learning well, not only God's, God's judgment upon Assyria, but that it's also its application for you and me today. You know, a lot of things, why judgment is so significant for us is, well, first of all, let me back up, A judgment is a big theme of Isaiah. So if you don't like to hear about judgment... You probably won't want to come for the rest of the year because we're just going to be talking about judgment, judgment until we get to chapter 40. And then it'll be comfort, comfort, comfort. Uh, but it's, it's judgment, judgment, judgment. Um, but you can't talk about uh, salvation without talking about judgment, right? Uh, it's, we are saved from something. We're saved from judgment. We're saved from God's wrath. That's God's wrath makes God's love and mercy and grace so much better. it's, It's wonderful for us to talk about God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. It's easy to talk about those things. But they lose their strength and their power when we don't talk about God's wrath, God's judgment. They go hand in hand. And the more we, when we study passages about God's judgment, they're kind of, it's sort of like, as I think about it, it's very similar to passages about Christ's return. And it has several different applications, very practical applications. And sometimes judgment passages serve to warn us; they're to warn us that here is God judging someone for sin, and therefore we should not want to sin. We should be warned to avoid sin in our life, to, to put away sin by the grace of God. But also at the same time, uh, judgment passages serve to encourage us, to comfort us, to exhort us to to continue uh, walking faithfully, to trust in the Lord. Just as uh, passages that talk about judgment of of the evil or those who uh, of the wicked. Remind us who are being, those who are living in a world that is, uh, that is under the influence of the wicked, those who are, uh, suffering under the wicked, will learn to trust in God even in the midst of, of that dark period, darkness. And today's passage is, is sort of an example of the latter. In, in this passage, it is a passage that speaks to the people of Judah, particularly to the city, people in the city of Jerusalem. But it's, it's a, it applies, it applies to all of the nation of Israel. And though it's a message to them, it's a message about Assyria, what's going to happen to another nation. It's like God telling a message to the United States today about what's going to happen to China or what's going to happen to Russia. He's like, well, I don't to care about what happens to China or Russia. Well, you would care if China or Russia was the most dominant power in the world at that time, maybe it threatening at your very doorsteps about to conquer your land. And that's kind of the historical background that we have here. And we learn that God's judgment of Assyria is a message, not just for for the Assyrians, but for the people of God. It's a message that encourages Israel, the people of God, to truly rely on the Lord. And I believe it's an appropriate message for the people of God today, for you and me. As we arrive at the end of the year, may we learn the application of this message to truly rely on the Lord. And I was, uh, the word truly is just added there because we all say, as believers in Christ, we rely upon the Lord. We all do it. We all, I believe in the Lord. But then when we live our lives, we don't. Uh, we, we're, we respond with fear, anxiety, worry, and we trust in ourselves. We try to figure out things ourselves. And only when we get to the end of our ropes and we say, oh, now i gotta, I got to rely on the Lord. But God wants us to truly rely upon him, not just in lips, but in our deeds as well. And so that's kind of our application where we're going to go today. The historical context here for uh, the for the people of Judah or Jerusalem at this time is that the Judean king, King Ahaz, was facing this threat of the Aramean, the Syrian basically, Israelite, northern kingdom alliance. They were wanting to depose him, replace him with the puppet king so that they can then form a greater alliance against the Assyrian empire. But instead of trusting in God, God told God even sent Isaiah to him and told him, trust in me. They're not going to succeed. Ahaz puts his trust instead in Assyria, in the king of Assyria. And so he makes a deal with the king of Assyria. He even goes and he meets with the king of Assyria. He'll he'll actually offer uh, the temple offerings to the king of Assyria. He makes this alliance with the king of Assyria against Aram and Israel. Despite the prophetic promises of Isaiah from God, this was a failure to trust in God on Judah's part, on King Ahaz's part, and because of his failure to trust in God, Judah, uh, in God would judge Judah, by in turn, turning Assyria against them. Assyria, after they, Assyria delivers uh, is Judah from the from Aram Israel alliance, Assyria would then turn upon them. And conquered Judah and nearly ravaged the whole of Judah if it were not, except for the grace of God's intervention. But the sovereign God, our sovereign God, would have the final word with regards to Assyria. And in our passage, it describes the eventual judgment upon Assyria, it, it describes the demise of Assyria. And the promises are a reminder, first and foremost, of God's character. They remind us of God's sovereignty, God's providence. That's always a huge theme throughout the Bible. And that's a huge theme for us because it's an important theme about God's character that necessarily leads us to trust in him. If God's not sovereign, if God is not providentially working in our lives, uh, we would have reason to not trust in him. But because he is sovereign God, he is a God that's in control. He is a God that's working all things together for your good to those of you who love him that we can trust and rely upon him. So as an outline for us today, it's a, it's a long passage. So we're going to read the passage within the text. But we're going to look at three prophetic promises surrounding the judgment of Syria that display God's sovereignty, display God's character, but also encourage God's people to truly rely on the Lord. That's where we're going to go today. Uh, let's pray one more time as we come to this text. Father, as we come to this word from you at this moment at the end of the year in 2015, As a people who continue to live in a world that is cursed by sin, with many uncertainties, each and every, each of us individually facing our unique darknesses, our unique despairs, unique trials and temptations, but yet also as a church body, facing similar darknesses, similar trials and temptations. Father, may we learn from this word to truly rely upon you. May we not simply sing about it. May we not simply say we trust in you. May we actually trust in you. Father, help us to be a people whose hearts and whose actions and hands manifest a trust in you, our sovereign God. And particularly a trust in our sovereign Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that your spirit would teach us now as we look to this passage. And even though some of it may be obscure to us. We pray that we would not miss the, the main point of this text, that is, that we would trust in you, in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. As we look to this passage, and this divides for us into three sections, three prophetic promises that God makes. It's actually, um, uh, it's sort of, there's a very good <clears throat> it's really describing one big picture of God's judgment upon Assyria, but three different aspects of that judgment. This first, the first prophetic promise that God makes to. Uh, Israel, or to Judah, is that the Lord will judge Assyria even as he uses Assyria. And that's the promise. That shows, And it shows God's sovereignty. And one of the most profound truths about God that we find hard to accept as finite human beings is that God is sovereign, which means he is in control of all things. Now, it's easy for to think that he's in control of things that are good, but it's pretty hard sometimes for us to think when of when we say that he is also in control of the things that are evil things like when we think of evil today we think of ISIS terrorists murderers rapists molest child molesters but god is in control even of those things god even uses evil people and their deeds for his purposes to accomplish his good will And yet we still would, uh, would the scriptures still still teach us that those very people that are doing those evil deeds are still accountable for their evil thoughts and actions. And so this is sometimes difficult for us to grasp or wrap our our minds around. But it is what the scripture teaches. And that's what we find here taught uh, with regards to the nation of Assyria. In verses 5 to 11, we learn that God uses Assyria to judge Israel. In verse 5 and 6, look at verse 5 and 6 with me. It says, woe to Assyria. So that's the theme of this whole passage. It's a judgment, a woe upon Assyria. The rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Verse 5 indicates this is a pronouncement of judgment upon Assyria. Yet... Even though God is pronouncing a judgment upon Assyria, He at the same time calls Assyria the rod of an instrument of my anger. He says, "It's the instrument of my indignation. It's the instrument, they are the instrument of my fury." God acknowledges here that He is the one who is sending Assyria against ungodly Israel. Assyria is God's instrument of His wrath. That's what He's saying. God's wrath is manifest and displayed. Through this nation, Assyria. And this is true despite the fact that Assyria acts with its own evil purposes. It's not that Assyria is like a zombie, you know, that's just being controlled, but they themselves have a will as a nation and they they are acting with their own purposes, uh, completely unaware of what God is doing, as we see in verse 7 through 11. Look at verse 7 11 with me. Yet, it, that is the, the nation of Assyria, does not so intend. See, they don't intend to be the hand of God upon Israel, nor is it a plan so in its heart. But rather, it is, it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, are not my princes all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish or Hamath like Arpad or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdom of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? Assyria is conquering. We hear that Assyria is conquering Israel is simply a part of, of her own expansion plans. This is just Assyria as a nation and as an empire hoping to just add another nation to the many nations that they had already conquered. They had already conquered the northern kingdom. They had conquered Assyria before that, Aram. Uh, they had And when they conquer nations in those days, they also portray it as a conquering over the idols, the gods of those nations. There's an implication that when they have victory, that their god, the Assyrian god, was greater than the gods of these nations or the idols of these nations that they conquered. And so, the nation they saw the nations that they had conquered and their idols as being even greater than insignificant Judah and insignificant their insignificant invisible god that they don't even have an have an idol for. are they, who is this Jerusalem that, that we would even that, that we would not respect them we 're just going to go conquer them as well, just as we did Samaria, just as we did uh, uh, Damascus. God uses Assyria with her own evil purposes to accomplish his purpose in judging Israel, and we understand this, and that 's what this passage teaches us: God uses evil Assyria. Think about Assyria. Assyria was the capital was Nineveh. It was such an evil capital that when one young prophet named Jonah was told to go to proclaim uh, judgment upon Nineveh and tell them to repent, he refused to go. He says, "Why am I going to go to such evil nation and let them experience your grace, God? Because I know they're going to have they're going to experience your mercy. I don't want them to experience your mercy. They're a wicked, evil city and wicked, evil nation. That's Assyria. But God says He uses Assyria." It's his instrument his, of his wrath. But make no mistake, God will by no means leave Assyria unpunished for her sins. As we see in the latter half of this section, verse 12 to 19, that God judges Assyria. God will judge Assyria for her pride, for her arrogance, for her evil. We read, uh, read in verse 12 to 14 this. But it will be that when the Lord has completed his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom I did this. For I have understanding and I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. And there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. Verse 12, the implication of verse 12 is that God uses Assyria to accomplish his work. Just as he used Pharaoh in Moses' day or the religious leaders in Jesus' day, God providentially uses the evil deeds of men of Assyria, the king of Assyria, to bring about his good purposes. But God says, as here in these verses, that when he is finished with Assyria, God promises to judge her king. ...for his pride. And you can just see in verse 13 and 14... the pride and arrogance of the king of Assyria... ...how he basically proclaims that he did everything... ...he's the one who conquered all these nations... ...is by his power, by his wisdom. And that's often the foolishness of man. That's, that's even our foolishness at times as well... ...that we think we do things by our own power... ...our own wisdom, when ultimately it's by God's grace... ...God's work in our lives. The Assyrian king pridefully believed... ...that it was he who conquered the surrounding nations... like a, ...like just taking eggs out of a nest... He was the one who, who conquered all those nations when all the while it was God who was using him. Verse 15 to 19, we read on that God explains that how he is the one that's behind uh, Assyria. Is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord the God of hosts will send a wasting disease among his stout warriors and under his glory a fire will be kindled like a burning flame and the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in a single day he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden both soul and body and it will be as when a sick man wastes away and the rest of his, the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down the Syrian king in verse 15, verse 15, is actually very beautiful. It's a very beautiful picture. But a, he likens, God likens the Syrian king to, to like an axe, a saw, a club, or a rod. Basically an instrument, you know, a hammer. You know, the other day I was hammering something along the The hammer, you know, the hammer, hammered the nail and put that beautiful picture. But the hammer does not say, well, I, look, I did that. I put that beautiful nail there so that, that beautiful picture can be framed in there. Well, in reality, it was my hand that wielded the hammer. The hammer has no reason to boast, but that's what the king of Assyria was doing as an instrument. He was boasting in itself, he was boasting in what he did when in reality God was the one behind him. God was wielding him. And this pride was his fall, for we know that God is always opposed to the proud. So God promises to judge the king of Assyria in this text by destroying the armies of Assyria. And this is why. Judah and her people ought not to put their trust in Assyria, but instead to put their trust in the Lord. Because though they are, come, though God was using them to come and judge even Israel, and will judge much of Judah even, still nevertheless know this for certain, that God is behind the nation of Assyria. That God is the one who is, at, who is sovereignly in control of them. And therefore, God also says and promises that he will judge Assyria in the right his time. And so, people of God, do not fear Assyrian. Do not put your trust in Assyria. Put your fear and your fear God and put your trust in God. Don't fear the axe. Fear the one who wields it. God continues to encourage his people with a second prophetic promise in this text. And we find this in verse 20 to 27. And that is a remnant will return even as destruction is decreed. Again, a remnant of God's people will return to land even as destruction a complete destruction is decreed. And this is and this again too shows us God's sovereignty, God's providence, his control of all things, even things that are evil, so that the people of God would learn to trust in him. Now these verses, twenty to twenty seven, form the heart of our passage. It is the heart of this whole chapter. In the face of the impending judgment of God at the hands of Assyria, God promises, first and foremost, that a remnant will return. A remnant will return. We read this in verse 20 to 23. Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them. And that is this is referring to Assyria. But will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return a destruction is determined overflowing with righteousness for a complete destruction one that is decreed the lord god of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land we see this return here of a remnant that is a few there's a select uh, a select few or chosen people among the people of god that will return and while definitely a and this is all kind of in the context of, of Assyrians' foreign policy, if you remember. Assyrians' foreign policy is that they would often conquer people and then take them out of the land and then uh, put other conquered peoples into the land. That was how, that's how they control their people. But while the return to the promised land is likely implied here, the text, if you look at it, this remnant that will return, notice that it's not about a geographical return, first and foremost. It's actually a return to God. That's a return to the mighty God. It's not a return to the promised land, it's a return to God that is promised. That is, that this promise is that the, the people of God are being judged because of their their sinfulness, their rebellion against God, their idolatry. But God tells Israel, Jerusalem, that there will be a repentance in the hearts of God's people. There's going to be a repentance. Instead of relying on the one who struck them, the Assyria, they will then they will eventually Learn to truly rely on the Lord. God promises that a remnant will return to God, but not before the judgment of destruction. There's a mention here in these verses, the repetition of destruction. The destruction of the land of Israel is determined. It's decreed. And who is it determined and decreed by? Not Assyria. God God is the one who has determined this. God the Lord God of hosts has decreed this. It is the destruction upon Israel, upon Judah is finds its source in God himself. This righteous this this, this destruction is furthermore described as righteous. It's full of righteousness. It's characterized by righteousness. And that's when we think about destruction in God, we think wow, there's destruction that God is behind. Yes. But when God is behind destruction, when God is behind judgment, it is always a righteous judgment. It's a just judgment. It's like when you think about uh, the punishment of those who do evil. When those who do evil are punished for their crimes, we often will say, that was just. If there are evildoers who are never punished for their crimes and they're never found, the rapists continue on, the murders continue on, we say that's That's unjust. But when we bring them to justice, we say, that's righteous, that's fair, that's what they get, what they are deserving. Much more so with God's judgment, God's destruction of, of those who are sinners. His destruction is always a righteous one. But, what's, but perhaps the, the, most, the most overwhelming idea here is that this destruction that God is behind for the nation of Israel is determined and decreed. It means that it's inevitable. There's nothing that they can do about it essentially. There's no getting around it, there's no avoiding it. They can go they want to hide perhaps, but they cannot hide from this judgment. You cannot hide from the hand of God. The sovereign God has decreed and determined destruction upon the nation of Israel. And it will happen. But he has also decreed and determined that a remnant will return. And a remnant that will return to God and rely on him. So for the, so as encouragement for those who hear this prophecy. Is that they would then learn to truly rely on the Lord. That they would be, among, be found among the remnant. And though they will experience the destruction that is to come. Though they will, be, they will probably be among those who will be taken into captivity in due time. Not by Assyria this time. But eventually by Babylon even. But they will return to the land. Because they will return to God. They will return to a right relationship with him. Because God will make it so. God has determined it. God has decreed it. God furthermore encourages them with specific encouragement in verse 24 through 27. Not only a remnant will return, will repent and return back to the Lord, but says that God's wrath will be redirected. There will come a time when God's wrath will then turn to someplace else. We read in verse 24, 27, these words, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, Zion is a, a poetic term for Jerusalem, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a very little while my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be directed to their destruction. The Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift up the way, lift it up the way he did in Egypt. So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders, and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of fatness. God specifically addresses here the people of Jerusalem. This is where we see that this passage, though it's a message of judgment to Assyria, is really a message to the people of Jerusalem. This is the subject. These are the recipients of this letter. In chapters 36 and 37 of Isaiah, we'll get the historical background even of all, much of this. In the days of King Hezekiah, Jerusalem will become the only remaining city in, in all of Israel, northern southern kingdom included, that had not been conquered by the Assyrian Empire. It would be the last fortified city. All the other fortified cities of, of Judah, including all of Israel, had already been conquered. Israel, uh, in the, furthermore, the northern kingdoms, many of the people had already been taken into captivity. It's just a matter of waiting for Jerusalem to fall, and then all of Judah would have been taken into captivity as well. And in, the, in chapters 36, 37, God encourages the people of Jerusalem to not be afraid of the Assyrian king. And that, they, they would, Assyria, though Assyria would be laying siege, they would be basically sending their, uh, their emissaries to basically arrange terms of surrender for the city. Despite this sense of inevitable destruction that surrounded them at the hands of the Assyrian king, God says here in this text that when that moment comes, that at that moment before Jerusalem fall, God's judgment of Israel would be complete. His dealings with the Zion, with Jerusalem, would be done. And at that point, God's wrath that was once focused upon Israel and upon Judah would then turn, be directed to Assyria and to Assyria's destruction. And so that's the promise here. God's wrath will be redirected. It will turn eventually to the nation of Syria, even before Jerusalem would fall. Until then, the people of God then are to not fear, to not rely upon man, but to fear and rely upon the Lord. The circumstances that Jerusalem would face are, are not so different from the circumstances that you and I face today. Maybe not as drastic, but we feel the, the pressures of it nevertheless the same. We find ourselves often facing situations in life that cause us to fear, cause us to be anxious. Because we find ourselves in situations that we basically cannot control. We're facing overwhelming circumstances that no matter what you or I do, we cannot change it. There's no one in the world that can change those circumstances. And when you're finding yourself in places like that, it is really just some of the songs that we sung. That you know, that we realize, we come to that place where we either turn in faith to God or we turn away from God. We, we come to realize that God has given to us all these things, the good as well as the bad. It is, behind, it is all under his control. But God wants us to be like Job who turns then and blesses God's name, turns to trust in the Lord. The temptation, of course, in those times is to turn away from God, to blame God, to say, no, you're behind this circumstance, Lord. It is your fault that I am facing this circumstance. And at times, even we who are the people of God can find ourselves not trusting in God. We can find ourselves doubting God. We can try and find ourselves trying to bargain with God. We find ourselves sometimes cursing God. But the Lord wants us to learn from the example of Jerusalem. He wants us to learn to depend upon Him in the face of circumstances that are completely out of our control, to trust and truly rely upon the Lord. I love Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, familiar to many of us. Solomon tells us to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. It's so easy to say these things, quote these verses, when we find ourselves in circumstances that we can control. And we know there's a way out. It's a whole other matter to believe and trust in these, these, these truths when we are in circumstances that are completely out of our control. It's a matter of faith. Sometimes we forget the significance of faith in our lives. One commentator writes about, on, on this verse that's regarding faith. He writes, faith is more than a, a means of justification. It is also a practical approach to the challenges of daily life. Just as much for us as it was for those who faced the Assyrian threat. We are not only saved by faith. We live by it. What situation or circumstances are causing you fear today? Are causing you worry? What circumstances do you face that perhaps you cannot control, that are out of your hands, that tempt you to not trust in the Lord, but really are a God's means to cause you to truly rely upon him. Consider once again God's character. Reflect again through this passage and other passages of scriptures on God's sovereignty, God's providence, that he is in control of all things, the good as well as the bad. And cry out to him and just cast yourself upon him or truly rely upon him. For that is what the people of faith do. A third and final prophetic promise that displays God's sovereignty and encourages God's people to truly rely upon the Lord Can be seen in verses twenty-eight through thirty-four, and that is that the Lord will defeat Assyria, even as Assyria Assyria threatens. Thematically, this third point is quite similar to our first point. It's really the same thing. I can just simply say C point one, but uh, there's a part. There's an intentionality to this. It. uh, uh, because of the similarity, of the first point it creates in Hebrew uh, kind of a very common structure in Hebrew uh, writing, and that's called a chiastic structure. And when the chiastic structure structures, where the first point is reiterated in the last point, what it does is it kind of serves to reiterate a point, emphasizes it, but more importantly, it emphasizes oftentimes the the middle point, the, the second point in this case. That the second point is what is, stands out for the people of God. Though this passage is all about judgment, about it, the judgment of Syria, that the really the main point of this passage is that. God's people would learn to truly rely upon Him, because God will bring them back to Himself. He will bring a remnant uh, back to the Lord. But nevertheless, we end here with this third point that God will defeat Assyria even as Assyria threatens. And so uh, even in, so we learn that even in judgment there is always hope. We look again at this Syrian threat in verse 28 to 32. So what falls is here in these verses is a well, it's just a list of cities. <laughs> but it's and so it's kind of hard for us to grasp these things because they're unfamiliar cities to us. It's just like, you know, someone uh, telling me about a name, bunch of names of cities in say, uh, Sweden. I would not know where any of them are, you know. What significance they have to me? And that's kind of how I feel when I, when I read through these cities. And so, uh, But yet, it does have significance. And what, is, what follows is a course that is the course that, uh, or a list of cities that Assyria would take in the conquering of the southern kingdom. After it conquers the northern kingdom, 722 B.C., shortly after it would turn against the Jude southern kingdom and start conquering all of the southern kingdom. And so this is sort of describes in, in, a vision of, in a vision from God to Isaiah the conquering of the land of the southern kingdom. Verse 28 through 32, we read then. He has come against Iath. He has passed through Migron. At Mikmash he deposited his baggage. They have gone through the past, saying, Geba will be our lodging place. Rama is terrified, and, and Gibeah of Saul has fled away. Cry aloud with their voice, O daughter of Galim. Pay attention, Laisha and wretched Anathoth. Madmina has fled. The inhabitants of Gibem have sought refuge. Yet today he will halt at Nob. He shakes his fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. All this is a description of the nation of Assyria and their conquering of the land. Archaeologists, at least these days, know the, the sites of eight of these 12 cities that are mentioned here, or towns, really. And there's a, and what they notice is that there's a, a very clear north-south movement, that from the northern kingdom, they would then naturally travel to the southern kingdom, and so they would conquer the, the cities in the north as they head south. Ayath, uh, mentioned in verse 28, is, is a, another name for the city of Ai, Ai. And to Nob, Nob is a city that's about two, or town, two miles north of Jerusalem. So it goes from Ai all the way to Nob and some cities in between, towns in between. Description of these cities, as you said, just as we read through them, speaks to this, this terrifying conquering of the land. The speed with which Assyria comes through swiftly destroying and, and taking over these lands. There's, basically, they are terrified. They cry aloud. There's really this, it's almost like it's, it's a surprise because of how swift they come. And what's more, when we get, by the time he gets to verse 32, the king of Assyria shakes his fist. That is, he threatens even Jerusalem with destruction. For a further description of the siege upon Jerusalem, we can uh, we'll look again later. At, uh, you can look on your time when you have time, Isaiah 36, 37, but also Second Kings chapter 18. We we'll see a very good description. It fills in all the historical details. Yet despite the threat of Assyria, God comforts his people. God comforts his people with the promise of Assyrian defeat, as we see in verse 33 to 34. We read, behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the bows, bows with a terrible crash. Those also who are tall in stature will be cut down, and those who are lofty will be abased. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. And you kind of read, notice there that says Lebanon at the end. It's kind of kind of throw you, because well, I thought we were talking about Syria here. Why is it talking about Lebanon? But uh, earlier on and even into the continuing to this section, God has been describing or figuratively speaking of Assyria and particularly Assyria's armies as a forest, as a, and trees. There's this imagery of trees here. And for the most Israelites, the most well-known trees were the trees of Lebanon. We call them the cedars of Lebanon. You, you find that, tr- that kind of term. And so Lebanon being this picture of strength, this great strength of, of trees and forests is used as a figure of speech for uh, the nation of Assyria. But nevertheless, what we find here is that Assyria, the promise is that Assyria will be defeated. He'll be, uh, his, the trees will be lopped off. They'll be cut down. But they'll be cut down not by the armies of Judah, not by Jerusalem, but they'll be cut down by the Lord himself. The Almighty will cut those trees down. They may be as great as the cedar forest of Lebanon, but nevertheless they will all fall by the mighty one. It's even the picture here of, of God being the one chopping them down. Ironically, they were once the axe of God, but now God will act himself as an axe to chop down the nation of, of Assyria. In Isaiah chapter 37 verse 36, we read there of how that destruction took place by the hand of God. That the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. That it was not a, an, any, any human army that destroyed the Assyrians. It was the angel of the Lord himself. Some believe that that's the pre-incarnate Christ himself. Who solely went and destroyed the camp of the Assyrians. 185,000 of, of the king of Assyria's soldiers were mur- were Basically, killed in their sleep. As a result of this the destruction that God did upon the, nation, upon the Assyrian army, Sennac, the, the, the king Sennacherib, as well as his army, uh, basically tucked tails and tucked their tail behind the legs and ran, ran back home to Assyria. And then, sadly, uh, Sennacherib, was while worshipping in, in his temple in Nineveh, was murdered by his very own sons. And thus, basically, began the, the demise of Assyria, eventually to be conquered by the Babylonian Empire. And so, the Lord, the fact that the Lord will defeat Assyria, even as Assyria threatens uh, with its swift destruction of of all the surrounding, uh, the land, the surrounding uh, lands of, of Jews, around Jerusalem, God promises that he will, he will defeat Assyria. We see again that God is in control of all things by this, by these verses. We see that God's sovereign power over the sovereign power of that day, Assyria, He overrules all the kings of the earth, even the greatest king of the earth in that day. He providentially works in and through all their evil schemes, their desires to expand their empire. And even as he uses Assyria's political ambitions to bring about punishment upon Israel, yet because Israel is his people, God's people, God sets a limit to what Assyria can do. He allows them to go only as far as the city of Jerusalem and no further And it is at that point when his wrath is finished being poured out upon Israel that he turns his wrath upon Assyria and destroys them. This is our God. This is our sovereign, almighty God. And as we look out in the world today, we find very many other forces, nations, powers that are are at work, uncontrolled. The evil of Terrorists out there, particularly, is probably most predominant in our news. But yet, as we see ISIS and, uh, and what they do in, in the middle in the Middle East, yet we still believe because the scriptures teach us that God is in control, that God is sovereign. He is sovereign, and He's sovereign over ISIS. God is in control of what ISIS. He allows him. No, yes, He uses ISIS, as He uses Assyria. And although ISIS and every single individual that is involved in that, those are guilty and accountable for their own actions before a holy God, our sovereign God, nevertheless, is using them, using their own sinful means and their sinful attitudes and purposes to bring about God's perfect and good will, even if we can't see it or understand it. That's what the scriptures teach us, that God's in control of even the evil, just as he's in control of the good. And he's going to work those, and use these circumstances, these people, to accomplish his goodwill for his people. Now, we might not like this when we come across this passage. And I remember the first time I came across this this thought about how God is in control of evil. It bothered me. It bothers me because I think, well, if God is in control of evil, then how can anybody say that, you know, hey, uh, that it was their fault? God's in control. He made me do it, is what the natural explanation would be. By the way, Paul would address this in Romans 9. I don't have time to go there, but you can look there Romans 9 about that whole subject of how God still, how God will use evil and yet he's not guilty. He has, still doesn't use them for his purposes. And sometimes we try to work around this idea of how God can use evil but yet not be guilty of evil with our, other, or with, look for alternative means. And really there's either, there's only two other alternatives. The alternative to God being good, who's in control of that which is evil, and yet not being the source of evil, is that either God is evil, and that's why he allows evil to continue, or God's not sovereign. Those are really your only choices. Either God's evil or God's not sovereign. But when you think about those two choices and you look at the scriptures, it just is not what scriptures teach. Scripture does not teach that God is evil. God is good. It does not teach that God is not sovereign. God is the almighty. He created heavens and earth with his word. Only a sovereign God who rules over all things, good and evil, fit what the Bible teaches about God. We see this taught in various scriptures throughout the, uh, throughout the Old Testament as well as new. One of the most famous is Joseph in Genesis 50, chapter 50, verse 20. God used Joseph's, the evil motives of Joseph's brothers and the evil actions for his good. Joseph said, you meant evil against me when he spoke to his brothers, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. See, God allowed Joseph to be sold by his brothers into slavery so that a whole nation, his whole family might be saved and not just his whole family, but all of Egypt might be saved from the the famine that took place and not just all of Egypt, but that all the surrounding nations and people went there because there was a huge famine. So they might be saved. God allowed a great evil to take place, a brother to be sold by our brothers so that good and salvation might take place. That's what our sovereign God does with evil. And that's what our sovereign God does with your broken families. That's what God does when you have a terrible boss. That's what God does with, in the midst of a malicious coworkers or classmates. That's what God does in this fallen world with so much evil. And God uses it for the good of his people. In fact, the greatest example of this is with regard to God's own son, Jesus Christ. We just celebrated his birth. But as we celebrate his birth, we also are very mindful of the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified. And there is no greater evil, act of evil and injustice in our world that was ever committed that when sinful men betrayed, arrested, arrested, Beat, mocked, judged, whipped, crucified, and killed the innocent son of God. And yet we all believe that in that, God was in control. God's in control. He uses the sinful deeds of those sinful men to accomplish his his good will and purpose. In sacrificing his son as a ransom for our sins. And he did that to save us. And I pray that if you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I pray that you would come to understand God's great wrath upon sin, but also God's great love in giving us his son to die for you. The response to this is to truly rely upon him. That's for you who do not yet know Jesus Christ, to turn and truly rely upon him for the forgiveness of your sins, for eternal life. But that's also the response for you and me as believers in Christ. Let us continue to trust and truly rely upon the Lord in whatever circumstances, good and bad, that we face in our lives. Will you not continue to walk by faith in our Lord? Will you not continue to walk by faith in him as you have done this past year? And in this coming year, not only as an individual, in whatever circumstances you face as, by your, as, in your personal life, but also will you not walk by faith, will we not walk by faith as a church? We will, uh, this year, Lord willing, we will have the opportunity to move to a new location. Uh, we'll have an opportunity to face new challenges as a church and, and a new site. Uh, we'll probably as a church go through not only the challenges of, of move, but the challenges of, of sin uh, affecting the church, it always does every year in different ways. Uh, but as we experience uh, the challenges of, of, of the curse of sin in our world, especially as a church, may we learn to walk, continue to walk by faith. May we truly rely upon the Lord because God is in control. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this word that encouraged us to trust in you. Especially, Lord, we who are already believers in Christ. We who have walked by, have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be people who walk by faith. Help us to continue not just to say we believe in you or sing that we believe in you. But, Lord, in our attitudes as well as in our actions. Let us be people who truly believe and rely upon you. Help us not trust in our own wisdom or our own strength, but help us trust in your wisdom and your strength that you give. Help us, to especially when we find ourselves in circumstances that are completely and wholly out of our control, that we would still acknowledge your providence and your sovereignty and your goodness. And though we may not understand it, we may not know why, but nevertheless, Lord, Help us to still truly rely upon you. This we pray, Father, so that we would be a people who reflect the glory of Christ, who came and experienced the greatest injustice in the world, so that we who deserve nothing but the, the greatest judgment receive the greatest mercy, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and a restored, right relationship with you. Thank you, Father, for bringing us back to yourself, that we might have peace with you, through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray these things for, uh, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you this week as you go forth. Have a happy new year and a wonderful time. Some of you guys are traveling back home to your various places. May God watch over you as well. Uh, may you continue to serve the Lord and walk by faith wherever the Lord breathes you.